Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week in politics, the Minister for Jobs and Innovation, Michaelia Cash, was fooling around with an improvised explosive device in a Senate committee hearing and the darn thing blew up in her hands, with shrapnel reaching the PM's office at the end of a tiring few weeks dealing with the now former Deputy Prime Minister's tortured love life. So it's all turned into a episode of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. So we'll check in with Michael Packey, the national political editor for Macquarie Media about the dearth of oxygen going on in Canberra at the moment. I also ask Diana Mussina at AMP Capital what's going on in the markets and specifically whether she thinks we've had a double top. Sue Lin Ong, Chief Economist and Head of Australian Research at RBC Capital Markets, runs us through this week's economic stuff. And Tim Lawless, Research Director at CoreLogic, reports on February house prices. I'm joined now by Michael Packey, the National Political Editor for Macquarie Media. Michael, I guess the Macalia Cash thing just continues to show how accident-prone this government is. Yeah, look, uh, it was a really unfortunate uh, comment that uh, Michaelia Cash made uh, on uh, Wednesday uh, during that uh, parliamentary hearings when she was really baited by Labor and Doug Cameron to explain about staff arrangements uh, in her own office. And uh, then she just basically said that she's going to reveal unspecified rumours about female staff members in uh, Bill Shorten's office. Uh, and she's refusing to apologise for it, even though Labor is putting a fair bit of pressure on, on her to apologise for the comments uh, that she made. She says that she, we've, she just simply withdrew the remarks but wouldn't go any further than that. There is a, a new statement uh, from uh, Michaelia Cash's office that is coming out saying that uh, she was under the belief that the opposition was simply just trying to probe into the personal details of her senior staff members, and that's why uh, she made the swipe. But uh, whatever it is, the bottom line is it's basically robbed the government of more oxygen uh, in a week where they really did need uh, to get their message out. Well, after many weeks of Joyce, uh, Barnaby Joyce robbing the oxygen as well, where do you think that sits now? Look, um, the, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with Barnaby Joyce. So he's now sitting uh, on the back bench uh, on Monday, as we know. The Nationals chose a new leader in uh, Michael McCormack. And uh, it was a contested ballot in the fact that uh, George Christensen also put his hand up for the job. Not that I think he was ever going to get that uh, role, but it was interesting that uh, the Nationals did have a contested ballot when they normally don't have contested ballots for these uh, uh, leadership uh, changes. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how Michael McCormack does work with uh, uh, the Turnbull government. I think he'll be fine. Uh, but with um, what I think is interesting about Barnaby Joyce, uh, he held a, a quick news conference uh, earlier in the week where he said that he doesn't ever expect to come back to the National Party leadership, but he wouldn't rule it out because he, he basically said you never know what can happen. Um, I do think what will be interesting with Barnaby Joyce is uh, over the coming year is if he doesn't agree with government policy, whether or not he's going to start making a life a bit difficult for the government in speaking out against a, a, a government position on a certain issue. And we know that he's done that before, especially when he was a Queensland senator. Well, so was George Christensen. I mean, you know, the, the, yes, I, right. I suppose you've got to wonder whether it matters. Well, I suppose... Uh, 
Look, when it, in terms of mattering, I suppose for the government it does matter in the sense that uh, if uh, they're trying to push a policy position, they need to get legislation through. At the moment, they only hold the, the lower house by that one seat. If you start having uh, national party MPs uh, creating a bit of a you know, ruckus in not supporting a government position. Maybe certain bits of legislation may not get passed uh, if uh, you've got uh, national members either abstaining or deciding to cross the floor, especially if uh, the government can't get any of the crossbenchers on board. Do you think Barnaby Joyce has a chance to cross the floor? I do think he's a chance to cross the floor. I don't know on what issue at this point in time, uh, but I do think he's a chance to cross the floor if there's something seriously he doesn't agree with and he thinks that the government should be going in a different direction. I think he'll threaten to cross the floor, as has George Christensen. George Christensen's threatened to cross the, uh, the floor before and then the government has generally, uh, uh, how would you say, uh, changed its policy, a certain policy, or uh, you know, it's done something to try and manipulate a policy uh, in order to to try and appease people like George Christensen. And the same thing could happen with Barnaby Joyce. Maybe uh, if he doesn't agree with uh, where the government is going on a certain issue, maybe the government may be forced to change a certain policy measure to ensure that it does go through and that the government is not embarrassed on the floor of parliament. But at this point in time, people like uh, Barnaby Joyce haven't indicated they'll be crossing the floor. But if he'll do it, I wouldn't be surprised. He could do it. He could end up being more powerful as a backbencher than he was He was as Deputy Prime Minister. Well, that's potentially true. Um, and and you, it's not only uh, Barnaby Joyce that you've got sitting on the backbench, you've also got Tony Abbott sitting on the backbench. So you've got a former Prime Minister and a former, former Deputy Prime Minister, two fairly outspoken leaders sitting on the government's backbenches. And as we've seen with uh, Tony Abbott, especially in the last couple of weeks, he has uh, started this whole debate about migration and about population, and people have been talking about it. Now, even though some of Tony Abbott's colleagues, some senior ministers have tried to slap him down, uh, in the end, we have had a lot of people talk about it. I know that talkback has been, uh, a lot of talkback callers have been really uh, interested in uh, uh, dealing with this issue and saying that the government must do something to deal uh, with this issue. If anything, it's created a, a, a debate point for uh, people like Tony Abbott and the government, even though the government may not like where Tony Abbott uh, is leading the debate. So, Michael, uh, <laughs> what is all this stuff? sucking the auction out of i mean what i mean is uh, what are the what are the policy things that are going on behind the scenes that are just getting obliterated by all this political well, stuff well the big thing that um, the government wants to be talking about is company tax cuts. That's the big issue that the government wants to uh, be talking about. And obviously, the other issue that the government wants to be talking about is putting the heat on uh, Bill Shorten on a number of issues. Uh, for example, uh, one of the issues that they did want to put the government some heat on Bill Shorten over was uh, uh, Adan, the Adani coal mine and uh, Bill Shorten's, you know, wavering view on the coal mine, you know, in the sense that uh, he tells some people in some electorates like the Victorian seat of Batman that, uh, the, that a Labor government uh, uh, would potentially not see the Adani mine go ahead, but then he's telling mine workers or coal miners in Queensland that he's is more committed or Labor would be more committed to the mine. So I think it's that, uh, that you know, toing and froing uh, on uh, the Adani coal mine by Labor and its leader is what the government would like to be concentrating on. But, you know, it's hardly getting uh, any airtime. And of course, the issue of uh, company tax cuts is the other big one. Um, 
that just simps- that simply seems to be going through uh, through to the keeper. They don't they're not able to get any oxygen on those sorts of issues. They obviously want to be talking about jobs and uh, the general performance of the economy, but they don't seem to be able to get those sorts of messages out. Joining me now is Diana Musina, Senior Economist at AMP Capital. She works with Shane Oliver. Well, Diana, the uh, Dow fell 380 points this morning. We're talking on Thursday. Um, do you think we've seen a double top? We think that the outlook for equity markets is still quite positive for the remainder of the year. And that's ultimately because we're seeing earnings momentum or earnings growth continue to surprise the upside, particularly in the U.S. And that, in the near term, should outweigh the increase in bond yields. Right. So um, I take it you mean that that means you don't think it's a double top leading to a bear market. That's 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 right. We see equity markets continuing to rally this year. Uh, we think that there's more potential for upside in areas like Japan and the eurozone, where you're still seeing quite strong earnings momentum. Uh, but the valuations aren't as high as they are in the US. However, the positive impacts of tax reform, you can't um, really outweigh. Uh, So there is still some more growth in the US. We just prefer to be overweight in markets that that we think uh, have been underperforming recently. Obviously, the market, the US market in particular, is soggy this week as a result of the statement by the new Fed chair, Jerome Powell. What do you make of uh, what's going on there? Well, it looks like what Powell uh, and the Fed is trying to manage is really uh, trying not to get markets too excited about or or to try and increase the fear in markets that inflation is going to run away. Uh, I, I think his comments were quite considered in that the Fed's still re- reiterating that they expect inflation to pick up, but not at a pace that would be unsustainable for the US economy or at a pace that would mean the Fed would have to hike rates too fast this year. So while his comments were quite positive and markets took that to mean we'll probably get four hikes this year, I don't think uh, it. I don't think that his comments indicated that we're going to get the Fed raising rates to the neutral level in the US, which is probably at around 3% or so. So that kind of environment is still generally positive for the economy. Uh, but the Fed is moving at a faster pace than what we've seen in the last few years. So it means that bond yields have to ultimately rise, and especially with the US Federal Reserve also normalizing its balance sheet. We think that yields are headed towards Three three percent for the ten year in the U.S. Yes. Um. Uh, do you think that the share market is now priced? That what happened this week, in fact, was the share market moving from pricing three rate hikes this year to now pricing four. We think the market has further to go in terms of pricing more more rate hikes. Uh, the latest pricing that I've seen indicates about yes, yeah, three 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 to four hikes this year, uh, and perhaps two or so in the following year. So we think that there's more more upside to go. Uh, and the risk is, or the risk that we see anyways, is that the Fed might have to hike five times this year. Uh, and that's if you get the inflationary stimulus uh, from the fiscal changes that you've had in the US and also from um, the taxation changes. 
but it's probably just too early to see exactly how strong those inflationary pressures will be on wages and on and on the economy. But I'd say that the risk is that the Fed goes more than what the market's pricing. So I take it to mean I take it that what you mean by saying there's more to go is that the share market has mm. more downward adjustment to go. Well, the important thing or the important distinction for the share market in the next few months will be whether the momentum in earnings growth can outweigh uh, inflationary risks and the move higher in bond yields. Now, for the next few months, for the next three months or so, we think that earnings momentum is still very, is very strong and that it will be able to outweigh any inflationary risks. But as we move further through the year and inflation picks up uh, or you know picks up as we expect it to towards that two percent level that the Fed's targeting, we think that equities might come under a bit of pressure in the second half of the year. Joining me now is Su Lin Ong, the Chief Economist for Australia and New Zealand for RBC Markets. Sue Lin, the uh, capital expenditure data out today, um, what did that make? Did that make you change your view about GDP growth? Um, no, it doesn't. The actual headline fall in CapEx was a bit disappointing. It was a bit below market expectations, but we were looking for a slightly softer outcome anyway. Um, the key component, uh, the plant and equipment spending, was actually up, and that maps a little bit better into GDP. So. We are leaving our GDP uh, forecast unchanged at the moment. Um, it's at 0.6. That is about 2.5% year-on-year. We've got a couple of other partials early next week but um, and we'll finalise our numbers. But right now we think uh, the economy was travelling at a fairly modest pace into the end of 2017. And talk about the handover or the transition from mining to uh, non-mining uh, investment in Australia. Is that sort of intact still? Um, very much so. And I think the story there is is, is a really encouraging one. Um, it's a trend that's been underway for a while now over the last 12 months. But I think more recently, um, it's picked up somewhat. And you can see uh, continued growth in non-mining capex. Um, and uh, more importantly, the spending plans for non-mining capex remain quite solid too. So I think it's pretty clear that uh, business investment um, outside of mining is strengthening. Um, I think that's consistent very much with uh, very high levels of business confidence and business conditions. And so that's a really encouraging story. In terms of the mining capex, um, the drag on activity continues to abate. Um, you know, it, it looks like from the forward estimates that we may see a little bit more weakness, but we look like we're coming close to the end of this, this major drag on activity from uh, the completion of resource-related projects. And what is the non-mining investment that's going on? Is it residential construction or something else? Um, look, it's, it's across a range of industries. I mean, it is predominantly in the service sector. Uh, it is um, your standard uh, you know, plant and equipment type investment, upgrading um, of capital stock, uh, hopefully expansion as well. 
Um, and, and, you know, for us, I think that's a really positive sign. It tells you that businesses, um, you know, are, are facing rising capacity utilisation rates, that to lift output, um, they need to invest more. And, and I think, that, you know, that looks to be going on um, and should continue as the year unfolds. We think as well that that stronger non-mining CapEx story is part of a stronger global CapEx cycle. Um, and we see it in other parts of the world. The US is a prime example, Canada, um, even in the UK, despite all the Brexit concerns. And so um, I think, you know, Australian businesses are part of this stronger global CapEx cycle. And that, that's a really positive thing. I suppose the main problem is that it's not turning into wages growth at this point. No, it's not at this point. Um, I think that the discussion around wages um, and the outlook remains a fairly complex one. It is a combination of both cyclical and structural factors. Um, we know that there are a number of headwinds uh, to wages growth. Um, some of which are not unique to Australia. Um, and in particular, we'd have to argue that on, on the cyclical side, um, the fact that there is still substantial spare capacity in the labour market means that wages growth remains fairly modest all round. Um, it's hard to see um, significant upward momentum anytime soon. We really need to absorb that slack in the labour market um, and that's going to take some time. The unemployment rate of 5.5% is probably a good half a percentage point above full employment. And probably more importantly, there is additional supply, we know, because underemployment levels still remain very elevated. So until that slack is really absorbed, um, it, it's really hard to see substantial upward momentum in wages growth. So, look, we think we're, we've, we've hit the lows. Um, we're seeing, you know, a modest improvement. Um, but annual wages growth around this 2% mark looks likely to linger, we think, for much of this year. Um, and what are your colleagues saying about uh, the US economy and in particular what the Fed's likely to do this year? Look, we remain pretty upbeat on the US um, following the tax uh, cuts and um, their implementation, our US team lifted both their GDP and inflation numbers for 2018 and 19 by about a quarter of a point um, for each year. So we expect growth this year to be pretty close to 3%, um, well above trend, um, and uh, core inflation to head a, a little above uh, 2%. So um, it's a fairly upbeat outlook for the US. Um, it is being driven by a very strong consumer. The underlying consumption fundamentals are, are, are strong all round, whether we look at the labour market, you know, an emerging pickup in wages, confidence, um, as well as wealth creation. So the consumer is a real driver there. But like I said, you know, we're also seeing uh, strength in terms of business investment, housing, um, and, and so it's a really positive story. Um, as the labour market tightens further in the US um, and the wages picture continues to firm uh, and inflation rises, you know, we expect um, the Fed to continue normalising rates. So we've long held four rate hikes in our profile for the Fed this year, um, we expect the uh, Fed to shift its dot plots fairly soon from three um, hikes to four, which would be very consistent with the view we've had for a while. So the team is pretty upbeat um, and uh, I think more importantly, they're looking for further increases um, from the Fed in 2019. So. I think consensus is very much shifting to our view for 18, um, but, um, you know, further hikes in 19 is probably fairly non-consensus at this juncture. That'll probably be a big moment for markets uh, if the dot plot shifts or when it shifts. 
Yeah, look, I think market expectations are, are shifting already and have been for some time. Um, you know, it probably started earlier in the month with that unexpectedly strong wages number. We've seen, um, you know, the testimony from the new Fed chair, Jerome Powell, also err on the, the more upbeat and hawkish side. So expectations are, are shifting more towards um, four hikes and, and uh, you know, whether um, the dot plots will move. So, look, I think... I'm not so sure it will come as that much of a surprise when it happens. Um, I think, you know, we've started to move in that direction already. Um, it's very consistent with what's happening in asset markets more broadly. You know, yields generally continue to rise. Um, you know, equity markets are now starting to, to wonder what that means and for them. Um, and, uh, you know, the dollar's finally um, finding a little bit of support. So, um uh, we'll see, I guess, when the timing is, but increasingly the markets are speculating about four um, hikes from the Fed this year. I'm joined now by Tim Lawless, the Research Director at CoreLogic. So, Tim, 0.1% uh, national decline in February, fifth in a row for the month now. I suppose we could say that the real estate bear market now is uh, well underway. Well, five months of declines would certainly indicate that. But I suppose um, one thing in in uh, in defence of, uh, of of the bulls is that the declines have been easing off a little bit. Uh, the last couple of months we've seen values fall by about 0.3% in November, December, January, and, and to see a 0.1% decline suggests that uh, the rate of of, uh, of falls is just easing off a little bit. But you can still see that most of this um, this downward shift is coming out of Sydney. Values were down by 0.6% over the month. And still Darwin also uh, um, looking quite shaky with values down by nearly 1% over the month. And in fact, um, uh, as you point out, Sydney's uh, rate of decline was 0.5% for the year, which is the first time we've seen that for quite a while. That's right. We've seen Sydney slip into negative annual growth now or negative annual change the first time we've seen a negative annual movement in Sydney since 2012. So it really does highlight the momentum has left the Sydney market. Remember, values peaked back in July last year in Sydney. And since that time, they've fallen by a little bit less than 4%. They're down 3.7% from that peak through to the end of Fed. Can you run us just through the other states, the other cities? So, of course, uh, you know, Melbourne has been uh, much more resilient to, down, to a downturn than Sydney has, but we've seen... Uh, three months now, where Melbourne values have slid a little bit lower. You know, it, virtually they're, they're flat. They're down 0.1% over the month in Melbourne. And, uh, and since they peaked late last year, we've seen Melbourne values fall by only 0.4%. Every other capital city is still looking like uh, reasonably flat conditions to, to slightly negative. Brisbane was down by 0.1%, continuing a fairly soft run. Adelaide values were flat over the month. Perth was down by 0.2%. The real standout here is, is Hobart, where we've continued to see a reasonably strong rate of capital gain. Now, values are up by 0.7% uh, over the month of February, and over the past 12 months, they're up a little bit more than 13% in Hobart. Um, and the other thing that stands out from your report is that uh, regional Australia values are holding up uh, pretty well. In fact, um, haven't declined. That's right. We, I suppose in, one, in some sense, uh, the regional markets don't have a high base to fall from, but we are seeing some real solid uh, performance from many of the satellite cities. So the strongest regional market around Australia was actually uh, Geelong, 
uh, just outside of, of Melbourne. And uh, we saw values rise by nearly 10% over the past 12 months across Geelong. Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, uh, values are up about 9% the past 12 months. Uh, the Southern Highlands of New South Wales up about 9% as well. So we are seeing uh, some pretty strong performance around those those, uh, those markets fringing the major capitals. But the other key highlight in the, the regional areas would be the lifestyle markets. The Sunshine Coast, for example, has seen values rise by nearly 6% over the past 12 months. So we are seeing this, this real migration and, and sea change phenomenon uh, driving values up in, in those coastal lifestyle markets. But the other thing about those regional markets um, is, uh, particularly for investors, is that the yields there are much better than in the cities. Yeah, that's right, and and I think just to some extent that's uh, that's that's partly a payoff of of the higher risk you find in some regional markets. You should get some compensation in terms of a higher yield. So generally, when you look around uh, markets outside the capital cities where where yields, you know, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, are, are just off record lows, are just rising a little bit a uh, little bit now. But you'll find most regional markets are showing uh, yields which are a couple of percentage points higher than what you'll find in their uh, corresponding capital cities. So I think that'll be become more and more attractive to investors, particularly as, as lenders really scrutinise uh, serviceability. Yeah, look, I'm not sure that's right about the risk. I mean, I'm sure that's what the market says, but I mean, the riskiest market in Australia has been Sydney and, uh, and Melbourne. They're the risky markets. The regional areas, as um, the evidence shows, have been pretty, um, uh, pretty secure. Well, you're exactly right, Alan, and uh, they have been pretty solid. Some some uh, you know, classic mining towns, for example, clearly the, the risk profile is very high. But I think uh, uh, many of the regional markets, they do see relatively consistent rates of capital gains and uh, and also higher yield profiles. So your total return, you know, adding up your capital gain plus your, your yield, generally tracks uh, um, fairly healthily. And, and as you say, uh, Sydney and Melbourne, I think the risk profile is certainly heightened considering the past five and a half odd years of very strong capital gains now suggesting these markets are probably uh, um, overvalued. I mean, just back to the cities, the um, the decline in values that occurred in 2015-16 was stopped by um, rate cuts by the Reserve Bank in, uh, in 2016. Now, that's not going to happen this time. So... And I think we've you've said before to us that the typical decline in this in this kind of, in the real estate cycle would suggest something like ten um, percent possibly, um, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. But that's the sort of typical decline you'd expect. So there's still a fair way to go, isn't there? Um, particularly considering that there's unlikely to be a rate cut to uh, rescue the market. Yeah, if, if those those historical averages are anything to go by, then then yeah, we should see. Uh, uh, value slipping lower for some time. You know, remember Sydney's down a little bit less than four percent since the values peaked back in July. So, and going back to, to your original part of the question, what really drove the rebound back in 2016 into uh, early 2017 was was absolutely lower mortgage rates, but also some loosening of credit policies as, as lenders met their uh, their new APRA benchmarks, which was the ten percent speed limit on, on investment credit growth. We could see some relaxation in, in lending policies. To, to be honest with you, we're seeing banks now tracking well under those those APRA limits. Investment credit growth annualised over the past three months is only around about two percent, so well below that ten percent limit. And interest-only lending is only about seventeen percent of originations, and uh, and the benchmark there is about thirty percent. 
So theoretically, the banks could open up the purse strings a little bit for investment, but we're not going to absolutely not going to see the catalyst of lower mortgage rates like we saw back in, in 2016. I'm not sure that um, the investors are going to be piling into the market, taking advantage of um, easier credit conditions. By the way, I mean that have the investors have to think that they're going to get capital gains and, um, and the returns were there, but maybe this time they won't be. Well, that's, and that's kind of interesting. Based on, on housing finance data, we're still seeing investors in New South Wales, for example, are a little bit more than 50% of mortgage demand. And they peaked at about six, nearly 65% back in 2015. But even at 50%, uh, it's still well above the long-term average, which is just a little bit below 40%. So it looks like investors are still active. Uh, you know, Yields are generally low in, in most asset classes. And uh, I think uh, Australians certainly have had a love affair with, with housing for a long time. And it looks like they're, uh, they're not really giving up on that just yet. Today's birthday song is Coldplay's Chris Martin, one of Phoebe's favourites, actually her absolute favourite in the past. He's 41 today. This is the song we played at Phoebe's 21st, which seems like only yesterday. It's The Scientist. That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing hello at theconstantinvestor.com and I'd love to hear from you. I'm Alan Kohler. Do have a constant week. Listener.